Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. And the History of Germany podcast is a member of a newly launched podcast network called the Agora Podcast Network, which you can find under agorapodcastnetwork.com, or there's a link on my websites, um, which is like podcastnic.com or historyofgermanypodcast.com. Um, go any of those sites and you'll see further links to the Agora Podcast Network's Reddit site or Facebook group. And there's some pretty good podcasts there that are members, like the History of the Papacy podcast, or American Biography podcast, or um, American or Ten American Presidents podcast from Royfield Brown. So there's there's a lot of great shows there, like as kind of the the founding members. And look out for some cool stuff happening, like more kind of collaboration episodes and that sort of thing to come. And because we have a Reddit, there could be like Ask Me Anythings or I don't know, whatever, from uh, history podcasters. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, anyways, this episode is the arbitrary, I guess, kind of final episode on the Germans and Romans miniseries. Because in the next couple episodes, I'll still mention Rome quite a bit, actually, probably in every episode um, <laughs> for a long time. But starting next episode, I mean, I have to draw the line somewhere and end this miniseries. So next episode, we'll kind of see Germans taking Rome from other Germans. So we'll, yeah, I mean, so this is a good place to end the miniseries. And we'll pick up exactly where we left off next time. So it's, you know, it's kind of arbitrary, like I said, but... Still, um, I have some other ideas for episodes that I'd like to run, so it's time to end this thing. And in this episode, I want to talk more about what we started to talk about last time. Last time, I had Jamie Redfern on the show. He's done several podcasts, but currently he's hosting the History of the United States podcast, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it. And he came on the show last time, and we kind of, and he, he was, he guest co-hosted um, the the beginning of the fall of Rome. So he introduced the Goths. We talked about the Huns for a split second, but I really don't have anything else to say about the Huns. Um, so if you want to hear, you know, some some general uh, a general overview of the crumbling of Rome, then go listen to last episode because Jamie Redfern just finished his MA in history and wrote his MA thesis on, or MA dissertation on the fall of Rome, like the, the fourth century, fifth century, whatever it was, and um, the Roman strategy and all that stuff. So that was kind of cool to have him on the show. And we talked about not just that, but all kinds of other stuff um, around that. He introduced the invasion of 406, which I'm going to talk about a lot in this episode also. So again, you know, I'm going to go over a lot of the stuff again. You don't have to listen to that episode, but if you haven't heard that one, uh, more than other episodes, I would recommend that you go back and listen to um, the, the previous episode with Jamie Redfern and then come back and listen to this one. 
So on to or a continuation of Germans invading and crushing Rome. In this episode, the theme will be kind of the three sacks of Rome, the Vandals, Visigoths, and the Ostrogoths. Um, basically, a couple kingdoms that don't last that long. Uh, I'll also mention the Burgundians uh, briefly. And this will set the stage for the next few episodes where I'll talk about the kingdoms that did last for more than just a couple centuries after Rome was gone, which in turn will set the stage for the Franks and so on. A quick summary so far, um, if you've never listened to the show before, we're like, I don't know, 20, 30, 20 something episodes in. So we've covered Germanic peoples moving south to Scandinavia. We've encountered Celts and, you know, and, Germ and Germans interacting. We've encountered Germans and Romans interacting. And sort of now in this part of the story, Germans have moved quite a bit. So all the way from Scandinavia and now all the way down to the Caspian Sea which is quite a distance. It's, you know, from Northern Europe to Southeastern Europe. Um, but I want to point out that moving all the way to the Caspian Sea took hundreds of years. So Germans were not nomadic by nature, which I've said before. And I also mentioned that Germans didn't build towns in this time, but they did stay put on homesteads. So they did, you know, live in family units um, within walking distance, within one day's walking distance from their neighbors, basically, usually. And if they were nomadic, it was in a seasonal kind of herding context, um, not yeah, not not moving from place to place over the over the generations. Oh, they didn't wander over their lifetimes. But as we started to get to last episode, there's a reason for this common misconception, because in this episode we're going to see Germans move very quickly in a single generation we see whole tribes get up and move as far away now from, you know, let's say the Caspian Sea to all the way across Europe to Western, you know, from far Eastern Europe to far Western Europe, as far away as Spain and keep going into Northern Africa and start circling back around East. Hardly anyone remained in the place where their parents were born in this one time, in this one generation. And gen this generation might have been different for different tribes because it was kind of a domino effect, so it was staggered. But regardless, all these Germanic tribes living in, you know, eastern Poland and what is today Germany and Austria and um, all the way down into Romania and, uh, and the southern Ukraine all moved with, like, very quickly. <laughs> Uh, all the way across the continent within, you know, over the years and even, you know, into Africa. So, but again, in this case now, Germans were not nomads. They were refugees. And in the last episode, we mentioned that the Goths sought refuge. Specifically, we gave that one example where the Goths were on the Danube uh, seeking refuge from the Huns, trying to, you know, asking permission to get into the Roman Empire. And... Um, in that case, it was a subdivision of the Goths, the, the Thervingi, who showed up in mass on the Danube, you know, asking for asylum. And this was granted by Valens. And like we, again, like, sorry, like we mentioned last time, um, because of a famine, Rome couldn't really deliver. Like, they couldn't really give the um, proper food and aid that, that you would give thousands of refugees. 
And this resulted in some atrocities, basically selling pieces of bread for children, for slaves. And the Goths, and then of course, they were all allowed into the Roman Empire. So um, they kind of wanted a revenge. So they, they basically just started plundering for six years straight. Valens died. Um, Rome basically lost an army. Rome had to eventually negotiate with the Goths after the Battle of Adrianople in 378. And which, again, I mean, that's actually pretty big, you know, so Rome had to negotiate. I should emphasize that. But but this isn't really even the beginning of all the chaos. So that's why I'm moving so fast here. So we've also mentioned before that these were Aryan Christians, okay, not pagans. Um, this is important because the migration period, which is exactly what we're talking about this episode, is sometimes called the barbarian invasions. And it was even, you know, called that at the time and shortly after the time. Uh, but these were not heathens. If they were barbarians, then, it, you know, not in the sense that they were pagans, they were still Christians. In fact, we'll see that they weren't really even barbarians in the classic sense because, um, like maybe the Huns, because they were actually, these, these Germans that were living pretty close to the border were pretty Romanized. And so we see these, like, very Romanized German, Germanic Christians as refugees not invaders really at all they you know the invading and plundering kind of comes out of necessity slash revenge uh, for all sorts of atrocities and blunders roman blunders you know along the way so when they do occupy the western roman empire we see them trying to be or pretending to be romans like we mentioned before last episode we brought up i really wanted to define it was in jamie's thesis um the definition of a federati like this roman client state because this happened a lot in this time period so it went from invading germanic tribes when it came time to negotiate when it came time to a peace treaty then the result of the peace treaty would end up being a germanic kingdom often within the roman empire or just the other side of the rhine or the danube and a federati that would be their official status with the roman empire um, so as federati some germanic kings in fact very many of them took this roman title very seriously or you know took this roman office very seriously and and you know they tried to be as cultured and as roman as they possibly could but these federati did not just happen peacefully like horrible dramatic dramatic wars just floods of people crossing the danube and the rhine I mean, the the Roman borders were just breached. They were just dissolved. Um, we t mentioned, we introduced the big invasion of 406, which, you know, happened like kind of romantically, as Jamie noted. During the night of New Year's Eve, the Rhine froze over and just we have the Alamanni and the Franks and the um, Burgundians and some Goths uh, just cross the Rhine into Gaul. And we have, you know, the same time, we, so we, we have the Visigoths coming in on the Danube and asking for refuge. And the root cause of all of this, why all of this happened, uh, all goes back to the Huns, which we mentioned last time. So to kind of fast forward here a little bit, I want to, again, <laughs> in case we forgot, the theme of this episode is kind of the three sackings of Rome. And so we'll start off the first sacking of Rome with the man behind it, like I'll start with Alaric, who was king of the Visigoths. 
and he fits right in because he was born right along the Danube in what is today Romania to a tribe that was at the time the Turingian Goths, basically. And when he was a child, that would have been the time, I think, when uh, these atrocities really happened, right before this or right after this, maybe, I don't know. Um, but it would have been a very fresh memory of Gothic children being sold into slavery to Romans for a piece of bread, you know, because everyone was just starving. It had just gotten to that point. So this would have been an Alaric's memory. And, um, you know, his earliest childhood was being spent as a refugee getting away from the Huns. Okay, so now we have the Goths coming into the Roman Empire. Uh, they plunder for six years, and eventually they kind of make peace with the Romans. So now a lot of Goths end up in the Roman military, kind of as mercenaries or in the, you know, as legionnaires straight up. Basically, a lot of the Roman military at this point was made up by non-Romans or non-Italians. So a lot of Goths, a lot of, you know, all sorts of other... Um, peoples from throughout the Roman Empire, probably even less Gauls nowadays because Gauls were so Romanized. Um, but yeah, so but at this point, we really have a huge influx of Goths into the Roman um, army. I mention this because this becomes important later. And Alaric is no exception. He does the standard thing, as you're about to see. This is, this is a really common thing where um, he becomes a Roman soldier. And he does very well in the army, but he ends up being snubbed for promotion after a Roman campaign. So he basically quits the army because Alaric ends up sacrificing half of his 20,000 men, helping the Roman emperor against the Franks, and then gets shafted by the emperor. And this map marks Alaric's break with Rome, and this is a, a huge blunder for Rome, as we're about to see, because, because Alaric now formally sort of enters the stage of history. Um, as the, when he leaves Rome, he enters the stage as the leader of this federation of Germans, Goths, let's say, in Thrace in 391. He's, he actually enters history as invading the place, this time fighting against the Romans. Um, he was elected Reichs of the Visigoths in 295 and promptly had a bone to pick with the Romans and started marching towards Constantinople. And another interesting point here is the Roman Emperor was able to stop him, but the Roman Emperor was actually half Vandal himself. So again, I just want to point that out because this is not necessarily civilian versus barbarian. The leader, you know, we have a, a Goth who was in the Roman army on one side and a half Vandal Roman Emperor on the other side. But so he, he gets turned away. He doesn't sack uh, Constantinople, but he goes on a successful sacking tour of Greece, hitting all the old highlights. And the Eastern Emperor decides to sign a peace treaty with him, uh, naming Alaric the master of the soldiers in Illyricum. And I don't think Romans understood this classical conditioning, frankly. They punish for doing good and reward plundering. I think that's kind of counterproductive. And in 401, Alaric heads towards Rome. But he's stopped and is paid tribute instead. A Roman by the name of Heronius has this fantastic idea create a popular uprising in Rome to massacre tens of thousands of wives and children of the Gothic federati, federati serving in the Roman military. So, I, I, don't, I mean, I, I guess the lot, I mean, there's no logic here, but I guess the idea is that Horanius just wanted to show that 
they have the wives and children that they can, you know, they're basically captives at the mercy of the citizens of Rome, and they could harm them at any time. But he shows this by actually doing it. So I, you know, somehow I thought this, he thought this was a good idea to, you know, to kill the wives and children of your own soldiers in your own army. Um, but the result was, surprisingly, <laughs> that all those Gothic soldiers in the Roman army basically went AWOL and joined Alaric. And they had a personal vendetta against the citizens of Rome now. And so we have 30,000 angry Goths on well-paved Roman roads. Ravaging as they went, Alaric arrives in Rome in 408 and lays down for a siege. So the Senate bribes him, like big time, and Alaric also ordered 40,000 Gothic slaves in Rome to be freed. But Honorius wouldn't meet a final demand of Alaric's, which was appoint Alaric as the leader of the Western Roman army. And so Alaric came back in 409. This, I just want to point out the significance of these events really quick, because um, Rome at this point had not been sacked since the Gauls basically 800 years previously. So the Roman citizens, you know, if this sounds like it was just crazy stupid for them to do these things, they basically thought they were invincible. I mean, they just, you know, no matter what happens in the broader empire, even though even if, you know, Rome wasn't the capital of the empire anymore, um, or wasn't already at, at various points, Rome was the eternal city. The Romans were just incredibly arrogant about, you know, it hadn't happened before. Why would it happen now? And you'd be right, because Alaric was allowed to appoint the Roman emperor and was happy. Uh, except for this new emperor wouldn't let Alaric send an army to Africa. And so Alaric turned around and came back towards Rome in 410. This time, he deposed his the emperor that he was allowed to appoint, and besieged Rome again. But this time, the allies within the capital had really had enough, and they just opened the gates. So, barbarians do what barbarians do when they sack the world's probably richest city at this point still. They treated the inhabitants humanely, and burned only the most necessary of buildings. No churches, since they were Christian, remember? And they even granted protection to those, even pagans, who took sanctuary in churches. They didn't plunder relics. In fact, some of the women could talk themselves out of being raped, which I thought was interesting. So they did loot and pillage a little. Like the pagan shrines of Augustus and Castel Sant'Angelo were desecrated, and Alaric marches, basically leaves the city and marches northward to continue his awesome life of conquering and ruling. Oh, but then he just suddenly dies. So, I mean, yeah, he died of, like, fever or something. I mean, like, I don't know, just nothing. He just dies. What's cool is, what's, what's really interesting here is that the Gothic custom um, dictated that a river be diverted and then he would be buried underneath the riverbed and then, you know, the river was put back to its original course and the people that dug the grave and diverted the river were then killed just to keep the whole thing a secret, like the burial place a total secret. And after Alaric's death, the Visigoths moved and settled in southern Gaul and eventually into the Iberian Peninsula. And I'll get back to that later. 
But now that Rome had been sacked, the Germans were both across the Danube and the Rhine, I think it's safe to say that Rome was no longer immune to invaders anymore. That attitude, we'll see, kind of gets shattered. Uh, like, in a really big way. <laughs> Let's just stick with Rome getting punched in the gut for a second. Rome isn't even the capital of the empire at this point anymore. So it's just kind of a, it's, it's a symbol. It's still, you know, there's, or there's still the bishop of Rome there. The western capital was Ravenna, which that would also be c captured a few times, but I want to keep moving. So the Visigoths founded the only new cities in Western Europe between the 5th and 8th century. And that's really interesting. So I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit here and talk about the Visigothic kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula because that's, that's where those cities were founded. That's actually, that is significant. So for uh, three centuries... Um, this is, again, okay, so, you know, I hate the term Dark Ages, but this is what they mean by Dark Ages. This is the time we're talking about. And so this is a counterexample to that, to see that there were Germanic kingdoms in this time, the so-called Dark Ages, that were thriving. Uh, in fact, they were founding cities and, you know, trying to be as cultured as they can and, and building buildings and building monuments and oftentimes trying their hardest to learn Latin. So I want to skip ahead and get to the Vandals so I can get to the second sacking of Rome. But the Visigothic kingdom did leave behind a bit of a legacy in Spain and Portugal, and it has a really neat ending, So, uh, which will tie into a later episode. So I'm going to mention a couple of points really quick. If you ever find yourself in Spain, the, f the four cities that were founded, the first one is was originally founded as Recopolis. It's today the tiny village of Zorita de los Canes, and it was founded in 478, after a victory over the Franks. Now I basically, I think the only things you can see, if anything at all, are ruins near that village I just mentioned. Um, it was basically destroyed in the Arab conquests. But, okay, so the second city was in celebration over a victory of the Basques, and named originally Victoriacum, like which is uh, now the city of Vittoria. And another Visigothic city is Lugo id est Luceo in the Asturias. And the f possibly the fourth and final city uh, founded by the Goths was Ologicus or Ologitis, where they actually used Basque laborers to, con to uh, found this in 621. And it might be basically where modern Olite is. And Arabs mention a fifth city, which by, might be modern-day Montoro, at the time called Bayara, but it's not really certain. If, I mean, that's the only source mentioned is a much later uh, Arabic one. But in 710 AD, Tariq ibn Ziyad, a Berber freedman, first lands with 400 men and 100 horses on a tiny little a peninsula jutting out straight south and just right off the coast of northern Africa, named at the time Jebel Tariq, which is where we get the word Gibraltar from. So that is the very beginning of the Muslim conquest of Spain. It's the Visigothic kingdom that they're actually conquering when they're conquering Spain. And basically, that would be, be the end of the Visigoths as a name, as anything, as a kingdom, as an entity. That's that. But they did leave a little bit of a legacy. Spanish has some words mostly related to war, including the word war, like huera, which comes from the Visigothic language. 
And some last names are named names of Gothic kings, like Roderick turns into Rodriguez, just as one of many, like really common Hispanic examples, like Fernandez, uh, Rodriguez, but there's many, many others, um, which I thought that was kind of interesting because they're they're very common here in California where I live. And after the Reconquista, like the when the Catholic um, Spaniards now took the Iberian Peninsula back from the Muslims. There was kind of a Gothic last name revival. The idea of a Spanish kingdom kind of came from the model of the Visigothic kingdom. You know, it gave them this idea. It had been done before. It was a precedent. There was a Christian kingdom here before, right? So after the Reconquest, um, another kind of interesting event happened at that time, which was this was the time of the Inquisition because they were very keen on getting the country uh, back to, you know, to being a very strongly Catholic country. So um, a good way to prove that you weren't a Jewish or Muslim converso, like just, you know, first generation Catholic, heaven forbid, was to have a Gothic last name. And Guzman was actually the most popular last name during the period, which, you know, adopted last name, I should say. Um, Guzman is, just, you know, it means good man. It's a Germanic last name. Gothic specifically. So the Muslim invasion that swept west across northern Africa kind of ran out of steam by the time, you know, after the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. And when the Franks are finally able to stop them, I'm not sure it was as big of, of an accomplishment as often portrayed. We'll get to that in a future episode. So now let's get back to the sacking of Rome because the city of Rome was still very symbolic. I'm going to talk about two other times Rome was sacked by Germans in the 5th and 6th century. And besides, I finally want to introduce the Vandals. And it also works to introduce them after the Visigoths because they are also Eastern Germanic, um, like all the Goths. And they basically follow the Goths all the way into the Iberian Peninsula before ending up in Africa. So we start with the Vandals, Probably, I mean, originally coming from Scandinavia, again, into southern Poland, in Silesia, like northern Czech Republic, southern Poland, around 120 BC, and then down into Dacia, following the Goths, basically, sort of. And now we see them, you know, north of the Caspian Sea, or let's say by Croatia, hemmed in between the Goths and on one side and by Constantine the Great on the other. And then the Huns happened, so uh, they, they were among the tribes that headed west and crossed into Gaul with several western Germanic tribes and in 406. And then in 409, they kept moving because they were, they were also, you know, they kept being pushed, and so they crossed the Pyrenees into the Iberian Peninsula. Vandal itself might come from the word to wander, nothing more really. So even though, I, w I mean, they weren't nomads before all of this, it is fitting now. They, they go from, um, let's say, Poland to <laughs> France to Spain. Um, they're culturally very similar to the Goths. They're also Aryan Christians. So it fits in with this episode with the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths that I'll talk about next. Uh, they sometimes fought to the Goths, so they, you know, they weren't always friends. They didn't always get along. Again, they were actually pushed by the Visigoths, so that's that is important to note. They, you know, they were refugees from the Visigoths, who were refugees from the Ostrogoths or whatever, who were refugees from the Huns. I mean, it was this huge domino effect. So, 
um, moving west along the Danube, they first had to defeat the Franks, which they actually did. But by defeating the Franks, that, they, that was kind of a huge sacrifice. So they, after this, they were much, much weakened. Um, when they crossed the, the Rhine in 406, it's a much weakened Vandal force tribe already. So, but anyways, so pushed on by the Visigoths, and right around the time when Alaric was besieging Rome for the, I don't know, second time uh, in 409, the Vandals crossed the Pyrenees into Spain. And here they hung out as a Roman fraterati after, you know, signing a peace treaty with the, with the Roman Empire. And they did that for a while and were given permission to settle until there was a Suebi Roman coalition that kicked them out again. And in 429, they migrated to North Africa from Spain under Genseric. And this is how Scandinavians, basically, um, at least Eastern Germans, made their way into Africa. This is a fantastic example of the migration period, maybe one of the most extreme examples of the migration period. And it's definitely stories that, like these that gave the Germanic tribes the reputation of being nomads, even though they weren't. Um... Now, okay, so now they're in Africa. Their new kingdom included the Roman province of Africa, as well as Sicily, Corsica, Sardinia, Malta, the Balearic Islands, and kept it from the Romans. And now we have the Vandal Kingdom. And just because I find Germans pretending to be Carthaginian pirates in northern Africa so interesting, I'm going to give you a bit more detail or some of the interesting points on this Germanic kingdom in northern Africa. So the Vandals and Alans basically had a joint king, Genseric, and in 429 they crossed into Africa, and it's estimated that they were numbered at around 80,000 at this time. And again, one of many such tribes that were on the move. And basically, Genseric gets an evite from Bonifacius, uh, which is some Roman military leader who's looking to become independent from Rome. And negotiations break down, and Bonifacius ends up fleeing and walls himself up in Hippo Regius. Oh, I'm not butchering these names, I'm sorry. But in any case, the other famous person in Hippo Regius at that time was none other than St. Augustine. And he's now being uh, besieged by vandals. St. Augustine, actually, I guess maybe this was too much for him at the time. This is the time where he died. Anyway, long story short, Genseric eventually gets Hipporegio and makes it his capital, and then goes after Carthage. The Vandals didn't have... And this was actually easier than it sounds, because the Vandals didn't really have to do very much. They just had to look at their schedule of the local races. Like, seriously, they just marched into Carthage while the locals were all watching the race at the racetracks. Like, basically no fight at all. And so now, and so now Genseric makes Carthage his capital, because yeah, that's, that's clearly much better. And now from that very strategic naval base, as, you know, we've seen throughout history, um, it's... You know, he, can, he has access to Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, Balearic Islands, and the Germans, in fact, occupy Ibiza and Majorca to this day. Anyways, Carthage is basically just a great port to terrorize the Western Mediterranean from, which they do. And two things here. 
the local population may have actually welcomed their Vandal overlords because the last government was actually pretty cruel. And the other thing, despite the sources, archaeological evidence suggests the Vandals came into Carthage much the same way as the Visigoths did in Rome. The Vandals didn't really vandalize a thing. Well, except they kind of did. They vandalized the coasts of the Eastern and Western empires from their central Mediterranean kingdom now. In Old English, the Mediterranean was even called the Vendelzee. And at least, at least that went on for about 35 years. But then Attila the Hun dies, and the Romans could now afford to pay more attention to these pests in the middle of their empire. And we get Valentian III. This now leads us to, slowly, to the Vandal sack of Rome. In the 440s, Genseric and Valentian III had betrothed their children, Hunaric and Eudocia, to each other. Basically, Valentian would, was hoping that this would stop the raids, you know, the piracy on the coasts and all this, and all this, and maybe even bring the Vandals into the Roman Empire, you know, as a, basically as a fraterati, but through, through this royal marriage. So, while the, they were waiting for Eudocia to become of age, Valentian dies, or was killed rather, by Petronius Maximus, who then names himself emperor. And now something weird happens. King Genseric receives a letter from the Roman Empress Eudoxia, asking to be rescued. Eudoxia was presumably following the example of her sister-in-law, Justa Grata Honoria, who had summoned Attila the Hun for help against uh, this kind of an unwanted marriage. Um, which, that's a famous story. Um, and, and even all of the backstory of this is all covered in the History of Rome podcast, so I'll move on. It's, it's neat. Uh, Genseric gets a letter from the Byzantine Empress, or the, the mother of the former Empress, the former Empress whose you know, daughter he was going to marry, and the Vandals come. And honestly, they may have come even if they hadn't gotten that letter. Um, but Genseric just saw this as, you know, a treaty being broken and therefore an act of war. And the Vandals knocked down some of the aqueducts on their way, those Vandals. And apparently that's where they, that's where we get the common term Vandal from because they, you know, vandalized these aqueducts. And now accounts sort of differ about the sack itself. It must have been a bit worse than the Visigothic sack because the, the Visigoths were only there for three days and the Vandals were there for 13 days. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it was worse. The Vandals were worse than the Visigoths. Um, Prosper of Aquitaine has Leo has Pope Leo I requesting that Genseric not destroy the city or murder its inhabitants. This is also a very famous le legend where Pope Leo I goes out um, I think Jamie mentioned it last time, I can't remember. But Genseric agrees, uh, and then the gates were open for him. So again, not, not, there was no battle, just, you know, just like the Visigoths, people opened the gates from the inside. Um, here it was just, they opened the gates because they didn't, you know, as a, like, don't burn anything and we'll let you in. And Maximus, uh, the emperor fled rather than fight the Vandals and was killed by a Roman mob. And now the Vandals did loot a bunch of treasure, and they damaged some objects of cultural significance. And the term vandalism might have come from some of these acts, rather than the um, knocking over the aqueducts. And they also took Eudoxia and her daughters hostage. Huner, and Eudoxia married Huneric, which was the plan. 
But because of Aquitaine's description of the story of Leo I and Genseric, you know, there's some irony to be seen in the fact that vandals are given the term or gave us the term vandalism because, uh, you know, again, they were Aryan Christians and they, they weren't nearly as bad as they could have been. They could have burned the city down and they didn't. Um, they stripped off some some brass tiles here and there and that kind of thing. But uh, in any case, other accounts tell us that they did arrive in Carthage and back into North Africa with shiploads, like a bunch of loot and shiploads of captives to be sold as slaves. So how that all happened with no violence or murder, I'm not really sure. So, yeah, you know, also the Byzantine historian Procopius reports that at least one church was burnt down. So not as cool as the Visigoths, I guess, who, you know, spared everybody that took sanctuary in a church, but also not quite vandalizing everything either. But after this, the Eastern and Western Roman empires might not have agreed on a lot of things. But after the Vandal sack of Rome, they definitely agreed on that the Vandals had to go. And so they joined forces and sailed off to meet the Vandals. But the Vandals de defeated them. In fact, they were able to capture the Western fleet and destroy the Eastern fleet through the use of fire ships. From 477 onward, the Vandals produced their own coinage. I mean, they kind of made themselves comfortable. Um, but only really bronze and silver, like lower, lower denomination coins, but still. So we have Vandal coinage at this time, even though they used the, you know, the Roman high denomination currency still. So not totally independent from Rome, but the Vandals were Arians and they were a little bit stricter than some of the other Germanic tribes. They did expel the Trinitarian bishops, like the Catholic Orthodox bishops. But um, once Genseric dies, the Vandal kingdom goes into a slow decline. They already were having issues in his lifetime um, to the Berbers and, you know, the Moors. Remember, they're in northern Africa, in case you forgot. So um, they, lost the, they lost Sicily to the Visigoths. And Hunneric, Genseric's son and heir, has his own problems. And he tries to reverse some of Genseric's, um, you know, the hard stance against the Catholic Orthodox bishops and um, is more tolerant. But this causes an Aryan revolt. You know, he has to go to Byzantine. He has to go to the Byzantines for help, and he's you know put back in charge. But he's deposed again and murdered shortly thereafter. But when the usurper was busy in Sardinia crushing a revolt, the Byzantines just landed ten miles away from Carthage and took it. And then a second battle basically wiped out the Vandal army. So that was basically that. The Vandal part of North Africa, like northern Tunisia and eastern Algeria, were Roman again. Many Vandals just fled until, you know, to the Algerian Berbers and basically integrated, which I thought was kind of interesting. And many joined the Romans and, you know, joined the Roman forces and, ar and army in some cases or just settled among the Romans. And others fled to the Ostrogoths at Visig Visigoths rather than join Rome. Visig uh, some of the Vandal women basically stayed put in northern Africa and married, you know, Roman soldiers and just kind of, you know, led their life there. At this point, they, the Romans had enough Vandal captives that the best ones, I mean, they had they had five cavalry regiments just as, you know, within the Roman Empire, just of Vandals. And then, you know, to not cause so much damage too close to where they were, they were sent off to Persia. 
And other than Vandals being in the Roman army at this point, after this point, you know, the Vandals disappear. There's no longer a Vandal tribe, a Vandal name, kingdom, anything. It's it's gone from history. There's one more tribe that came across in 406. I'm going to skip them this episode because they'll come up again in the Frank episode and again in the History of Switzerland miniseries, and that is the Alemanni. So, but before we move on to the last sacking of Rome, um, which was 109 years after the Vandal sack of Rome, namely this time the Ostrogoths wanted to take a swing. And before we get to the Ostrogoths, there is one more tribe I do want to mention this episode, and that would be the Burgundians. And this is a good time to mention them, I guess, as good at any time, um, is because they might also be related to the Vandals and the Goths. So the Burgundians are also categorized as an East Germanic tribe. So we're not quite talking fine wine yet. Before the migration period, we see them on the Oda, or in modern-day Poland, kind of by Brandenburg. That whole area is basically where the Burgundians came from at, at the start of the migration period. And we see them coming into Romans, and, and Roman sources mentioning them alongside the Vandals as, as warriors, basically. And, but the Romans were also able to keep them out. And the Alamanni basically were able to enter the depopulated Alamanni land. Um, but again, I'll get to the Alamanni later. And then the 406, crossing of the Rhine. So like the Franks and the Alamanni and the Vandals, they signed a treaty with the Roman as a Ferdus, like the client kingdoms from the last episode. And that worked for a couple decades. Orosios, their leader, who died in 418 in his last years, converted to Christianity and, you know, called himself the protector of the Romans. So clearly a Roman clan kingdom. The Romans had now, through the Burgundians, they had secured the Rhine border again and all seemed fine. Now, there's, there might be a misnomer here. Some believe that Burgundian uh, means those that live in burgs, like castles, uh, you know, um, but that's, that's, that etymology at least was believed for a very long time. That's probably not true. Um, but anyways, I don't even know why I brought that up. And they, they move west into, uh, Belgica, into the Roman, into the Roman empire proper, really. And at first won a victory against the Romans, but were finally defeated with the help of Hunnic auxiliary troops. This event, uh, the reason I bring this up is this might be the historic kernel behind the Nibelungssage. This, it's basically the story of, like, the story of this defeat, which is just interesting to point out. I'll, I'm sure I'll bring that up again at some future point. But after this defeat, they eventually get their land in what is today the west of Switzerland and Savoy. And they wanted to expand towards the Mediterranean, but the Visigoths basically beat them to it. Um, and as the Roman allies to the Visigoths, they gained importance within the Roman Empire. But the next attempt to increase their land, they were successful. This time, they went as far as Basel and Avignon and, well, Burgundy, and settled the Rhone Valley. And Gundobad, the king, had the Lex Burgundonium written in 516. And this is an interesting, nice little mix of Romans, Roman province right law and Germanic influences, like Germanic tribal law. 
So again, that's why it kind of fits in with this narrative of, you know, not quite Germanic, but definitely not Roman either. The Lex Burgundionum is just a great example of that. Um, but there's some differences here between the Alamanni and the Burgundians because the um, Burgundians did not leave behind much of a like linguistic legacy. We don't see the current inhabitants speaking Burgundian or, you know, Burgundian as a part of their dialect. The, whereas the Alamanni left quite a footprint um, in the territory where they settled. We see their influence until today. Um, in fact, the French called Germany Alamant and not Burgundy. And, um, you know, the Spanish too, it's Alemania. So there's clearly some differences there that, you know, that must have been significant in their culture or how they handled something. Uh, maybe they were too Roman and so there just wasn't enough of a Germanic influence. I, I don't know. But the first Burgundian king of this new kingdom and his heirs um, did wear the honorary Roman title patrician. So there was a, you know, they were clearly trying their best to be Roman protectors. And we do see German kings parading as Romans. So we do not see them using the term imperator. They were not emperors or Kaiser even, um, as in king of all Romans or emperor. None of that stuff yet, but uh, definitely patrician. They're using Roman titles. And the Burgundian story ends with the rise of the Franks. And I'll handle all of that in detail in episode on the Franks. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll have Jamie Redfern back on the show to uh, talk more about the Burgundians later when they meet the Franks. Uh, we'll see. Um, there's, there's a lot of interesting tidbits and stories there, but I'm trying to move on here. So the, the name Burgundy obviously doesn't end. We see independence again as a Frankish kingdom. And but that's that's totally different. That's separate. That's later. That's a you know totally different dynasty. Not the Burgundians as a Germanic tribe anymore. So there's a difference there, and that's you know important to point out. So because the Frankish kingdom um, becomes the earldom of Burgundy, and that plays a central role in the noble houses of Europe. So you will hear the name like Valois Burgund, for instance, or the princesses from the House of Burgundy marrying Habsburgs. Um, so in that sense, Burgundians would inherit some of the Holy Roman Empire. So their story would play a role in the history of Germany and even a, perhaps would have played a bigger one since the Burgundians are related to all the royal families of Europe. And then, you know, the Frankish kings themselves even at times. Um, but again, so that's there's a separation there between those Frankish Burgundians and these Burgundian, you know, Eastern Germanic Burgundians. Totally different. Franks are Western Germanic. So, and anyways, so that's all later. So let's get back to the sacking of Rome. One hour in, at least before I edit here. <laughs> and I'm introducing the Ostrogoths. Maybe I'll split this into a separate episode. I'm not sure. I think you guys can handle it. Just don't forget there's a pause button. So, hey. Um, anyways, the Ostrogoths are important for a few reasons. The Ostrogoths are an important link in the chain between the Roman Empire and later Germans claiming to be Roman emperors. So, if I want to give you the whole history from, you know, one event to the next, we have to talk about the Ostrogoths. Um, they were actually pretty significant. Even though they died out, didn't last very long, 
there's some interesting things to mention here. So like the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths were a later Gothic group. Um, I didn't mention this before necessarily, but the two Gothic groups, the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths, were separated and known as two different groups pretty early on, although both groups went by various names. Okay, so um, there's a lot of names thrown around there, but there were two different groups pretty early on. So yeah, anyways, they show up as a distinguishable group by the end of the fourth century, and they have come from a bit further on the Asian steppe or the you know Eastern European steppe than the descendants of the Visigoths. Uh, so it was definitely an early split in the in the group of Goths. Um, they weren't confused at the time. Like that's that's the, what I'm trying to say. At the time, no one confused Visigoths and Ostrogoths. They they were called to, two totally different names, um, and not always Visigoths and Ostrogoths, but they were not really confused with each other. So you shouldn't either. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So it was the Ostrogoths who were first overrun by the Huns. You know, they were the furthest east. So they were the first domino to be hit by the Huns. So it was the Ostrogoths that would fight along the Huns as vassals in later years because the Huns just crashed into them and were quite victorious. Took many, many captives, killed many, many of them, um, and then, you know, made them fight for them. So... Um, the, uh, the Ostrogoths that fled now entered into relations with the empire, were settled on lands in Pannonia, becoming again a federati, this time to the Byzantines. And during the later part of the 5th century, Ostrogoths playing a similar role in southeastern Europe that the Visigoths played in the century before. So... We see them going to and from in, in every conceivable kind of relationship from from friendly to hostile with the Eastern Roman Empire until just as the Visigoths had done before them, they went from east to west. Just as I kind of jumped ahead on the Visigoths and went straight to Alaric, I'm going to jump ahead with the Ostrogoths and go to Theodoric. Now, like we've seen before... Theodoric also grew up as a Byzantine hostage, so he grew up speaking Greek and Latin, um, educated in the Roman manner. He was clothed, you know, wore Roman clothing. He held Roman titles and offices, like patrician consul, but he also remained the national Ostrogothic king. Then Theodoric, and, and this is where he's an important um, you know, link in the chain, is that he was known for his support from the Catholic Church even though he was an Arian. So he appeased the Pope in 520 and actually allowed freedom of religion, which hadn't really been done before. And Theodoric would set a very important precedent, so pay attention. He would set the precedent. Theodoric basically saw the Pope as not only an authority of the church, but also also like an, a, a political authority over Rome itself. So even though, and this is like, this is crucial, and Theodoric, even though he was Arian, not Catholic, he still saw the Pope as not just a church leader, but more. He had, you know, direct political power in Rome, basically. That's, again, a link in the chain because we will, I'll bring this up again with the Lombards and then the Franks and then the Saxons. Okay, so the Pope is seen as the only authority of Rome really left. 
Byzantines existed throughout all of this, but the Germanic tribes would always have a relationship with Rome after this precedent. Okay, so Rome had this like symbolic romantic notion far beyond just the city itself. And we see Theodoric setting the pattern. Theodoric sought to revive this Roman culture and government. And who were the local experts on Roman culture and government? Italians. Oh, and also the Catholic Church. Theodoric basically was called on a Byzantine mission from in 488 from the Byzantine Emperor Zeno to take back Italy from Odoacer. And Theodoric marched off. He took Ravenna and made it his capital in 493. And Theodoric actually killed Odoacer himself during dinner. This is a crazy story. So when a plot to have some guys murder him while they ate failed, Theodoric just drew his own sword and swung at Odoacer himself. And he hit him right in the collarbone. Um, so that was that was the end of Odoacer. He took all of Italy, including Sicily, Dalmatia, which is modern-day Croatia, um, where, by the way, Diocletian was born and later retired to, or tried to retire to. Theodoric was only 30 years old in 500 AD. Theodoric's, I'm not, I wasn't quite sure how to put this, but Theodoric's political network went much further. His, uh, his reach, his authority went much further than just the Ostrogothic kingdom in Italy. He became the strongest king of any sort of a sort of uh, loose Germanic league. So he was the most powerful king of this Germanic league. He had alliances with the Visigoths, the Franks, the Alamanni, the Burgundians. Um, the Franks later kind of changed their mind. But in some way, you know, he held some sway to some degree or other from the whole of the Iberian Peninsula to most of Gaul, France. He was, he was even king of the Visigoths and Ostrogoths, at least nominally for a short time. So Theodoric would again set the stage for not forgetting Roman rule, this, you know, trying to reunite the Roman Empire kind of idea. And Theodoric, because he really was a king of kings, in a way, very loosely, and, you know, his alliances were different with different tribes. So I don't want to generalize here, or I don't want to paint everything with a really broad brush here, but Theodoric would kind of really emulate this Western Roman emperor, this idea, and he would try to carry on tra tradition while also being a Germanic king. He really had a dual system. You know, he had a, a mixed Germanic law and Roman um, rule kind of idea. And again, so this sets another really strong precedent for later German kings. But the Franks, uh, as we'll see in a later episode, faithfully, I would say, allied themselves in the end with the Byzantines as a counterweight to the Ostrogoths. So this was, for the Byzantines and the Franks, this worked out really um, in both of their favors. And um, right around this time, Theodoric dies in 526. And this was really bad timing because Theodoric did not really have, in fact, he saw most of his heirs die before him or, you know, were killed before him. So he didn't leave a clear successor. And upon his death, um, in kind of a quite spectacular fa fashion, the Ostrogothic kingdom goes from being the strongest Germanic kingdom to nothing at all. The federation just falls apart. The Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian I 
um, he's always had this goal of, you know, restoring as much of the Western and Roman Empire as he could. And here was his chance. You know, here's the, the Ostrogothic Kingdom in Italy. No clear, like really weak um, leadership right now. Um, people, you know, a lot of infighting, no clear succession. And he launches an attack, land and sea. Just Justinian began his war of reconquest. Belisarius, who was done with the Vandals at this point, Justinian sends off after the Ostrogoths. And Belisarius does not take Napoleon's advice because Napoleon wasn't born yet, I guess, was a good enough reason. And he conquers Italy from the bottom. He goes through Sicily, um, and it works. He's successful. He quickly captures Sicily and moves on into Italy. He goes for Naples and then Rome in December of 536. 537, the Goths march on Rome. It's, it's kind of their turn, I guess, again. And with upwards of 100,000 men under the leadership of Wittigus, or Wittigus, laid siege to Rome, but were not successful. Which is kind of weird because they had a they had a majority of five to one. So I do want to point out why that's significant because if people from the inside of Rome do not throw open the gates, apparently it is still a easy to defend city. And uh, I'm going to make this point again here in a minute. But but Belisarius for now holds tight and you know keeps Rome. Um, and it was Belisarius's turn to take the offensive. He recuperates from the siege, which was pretty brutal, and goes up and goes off and sweeps up the rest of the Ostrogoths in Milan and then Ravenna, you know, which was their capital, the Ostrogothic capital. And after this, Belisarius is uh, leaves back for Constantinople, you know, mission accomplished, right? So he leaves with Vitigus in chains, and as soon as he's gone, the Ostrogoths just appoint a new king. And let me introduce Totila who promptly marches on Rome. Now, Totila tries to break my nice chain here. <laughs> Totila does not want to be a Roman emperor. Totila hates Rome. He, has, he wants nothing to do with Rome. He is an Ostrogoth, and this is the last chance for them to be Ostrogoths, basically. Now, um, Bessas, the current commander of the imperial garrison, gets besieged again by Totila this time in Rome. It gets, this siege becomes really brutal. Totila is just, he's had it with Rome. And this is not the previous or even the later Germanic kings that want to preserve Rome and be the Roman emperor. Totila wants to just, Totila wants to, you know, completely destroy the city, burn it down, you know, move the bricks if he can, and make it pasture, uh, you know, land for sheep. Um, inside, the Romans are feeling the pressure of the siege, and Bessas, the commander, he's kind of um, just selling his stock of grain to, to the civilian population at a huge inflated price, you know, while they're under siege. So people are starving, which means only the people, only the rich are really eating, which that's a bad situation. And he also refuses civilians to leave the city, because at this point, many civilians are just willing to um, give up to the mercy of the Ostrogoths because, you know, they're dying. Uh, and Procopius uh, describes the famine during the siege, which it, it gets really bad. Um, they go from eating bran to nettles, dogs, mice. Finally, 
apparently eating feces if the records are to be believed and not um, over-exaggerated. And if they don't starve to death, some even commit suicide just to kind of escape that horrible situation. And finally, the Roman commander releases the Romans that want to leave the city. But the civilians are so starved at this point that some are, you know, they're so weak when they leave the city gates, they collapse. Like the walking is actually too much and they collapse on the road and die. And others fleeing the city were killed by the Ostrogoths. The Pope at the time, who had fled to Syracuse, sent grain um, to Rome via ship. But Totila's navy intercepted them and um, at the mouth of the Tiber and captured the fleet. So actually that just helped Totila uh, sup- supply his siege, if anything. And so Belisarius returned to try and do something against these Ostrogoths. Um, but basically, either his subordinates failed in lifting the siege, or, I mean, at least they got the blame in history. And, and now Belisarius actually gets ill and is basically out of the game. And Totila finally enters Rome on the 17th of December, 546. Now, his men enter Rome by scaling the walls at night and then open the Asinarian Gate, which you can still see in Rome today. And Procopius states that Totila was aided, again, so we see some treachery here, and at this point, people are just starving. So, um, basically... Uh, they even say that it was the you know the Assyrian uh, some Assyrian troops from the Imperial Guard who arranged a secret pact with the Goths and then let them in the city. Now the Goths enter the city cautiously and um, basically the some of the defenders escaped through another gate. Only 500 of the defenders were sought refuge in various churches, um, and 26 soldiers and 60 civilians were killed. Now Rome was definitely plundered this time. And again, Totila apparently intended to turn the city into sheep pasture, like I said, but someone must have talked him out of him and changed history to some degree, uh, I guess, because um, he tore down about one third of the defensive walls so that Rome, you know, it would be, he could come and go as he please and other Germanic tribes or anybody could come and go as they please. It just it wouldn't be a um, place to you know kind of like the Roman strategy of Carthage, just just tear it down as a defense. But then he he leaves on and and you know tries to fight the Byzantines. So this right here, this moment, 546 A.D. This might be rock bottom for Rome if there ever was one in its whole history. Uh, nearly sheep pasture. That's that's this is it right here. If if there is a such thing as a dark ages, which there's not, there's totally not. Um, there might have been for the Roman civilians themselves. This this would have been pretty darn bleak um, for the chroniclers at the time. I, I definitely you know I'll grant them I'll grant them that. But it was now, it was no trouble at all for Belisarius to take back Rome because, you know, a third of the walls were missing. And he went into Rome and piled up rocks to kind of rebuild the wall. And now it's kind of another sign to just to show how easily Rome must have been defended if, if they didn't mess it up every time. Because just, just piling up rocks was enough to hold up another uh, attack by a Totila. So 
um, there you go. But Belisarius doesn't really do much. Um, Totila takes some surrounding towns. Belisarius is recalled back to Constantinople. And Totila heads back to Rome and takes it. Um, okay, so... Yeah. Uh, is anybody still counting how many times Rome has been taken now? The reason I wanted to put all of this into one episode, and thank you for bearing with me. I hope you did hit pause at some point and took a break. I have not. Uh, this is all one sitting, if you're keeping track. But uh, it's an hour and 20 minutes, by the way. The reason I wanted to do this all in, all in one sitting is because at the beginning of the episode, when the Visigoths took Rome, the Romans were still shocked. This was just crazy. The unthinkable actually happened. This was the end of times. You know, the, the second coming was about to happen, like surely. This was the, the army of the Antichrist. You know, now we're on what? Uh, Roman sack, I don't know, 25? I mean, 8, 10, 12? I'm not sure, but it's Totila's third march. It's his second or third time taking it, or his fourth march. Um, but it, now he was killed in battle. So that, that marks the end of Ostrogothic reign in Italy, basically. By the late 6th century, they were integrated into other tribes. Um, as the Ostrogoths, basically, that as a group, they ceased to be. The Lombards um, hit the final nail in the coffin when they just absorbed what was left, um, any that were left in Italy, I'll say. And Theodoric just couldn't really leave a legacy, as, as mighty as he was, as the king among kings of you know, Germanic kings. Totila almost wanted the completely opposite. He wanted to eradicate Rome instead of, you know, pretend to be a Roman emperor. So, um, you know, as, a, as some footnotes here, some final notes, I guess, some Goths did make a last stand after Totila's death. The survivors of that in Campania fled to what is, or, you know, went back to what is today South Austria. And the Ostrogothic name died out as a tribe, as an entity, as a kingdom, gone, just like, you know, the Visigoths and the Vandals. Same fate. And eventually the Lombards and the Alamanni and the Burgundians. Um, but history might have been very different had the Franks then not taken over as the main Germanic force. I mean, if, the, if Theodoric might have had, you know, a clear successor, everything could have been very different. And it's hard to say. But the Goths as a whole... So Visigoths are gone, Ostrogoths are gone, even the Vandals are gone. Other all Germanic tribes are basic East Germanic tribes are kind of disappearing from the map. But there's still the Crimean Goths, and we I brought them up last episode. Um, and because I might never come back to the Goths, we're going to definitely finish the Goths now. The, the Crimean Goths are just amazing. They're just fascinating. And I, that's why I'm going to, you know, make sure I, I really do them some justice by bringing them up into episodes and now finally cover them a bit better. Basically, um, the simplistic way to say this is there were some Goths that were just not in the way of the brunt of the Hunnic attacks. So the Ostrogoths were just right in the way. They were too far east, and when the Huns came, the Ostrogoths were first, first to fall and then first to flee. But the Goths, you know, 
went right past some, because if you look at the Crimea, it's basically a peninsula in the Black Sea. So if the Huns were heading east, you know, some of the Goths were just, you know, in rugged enough terrain, rural enough, just isolated enough from the rest of the Goths that they just were able to stay put. And this is significant. So um, this was well known in the late antiquity and early Middle Ages. There was even a, an area known as Gothia or Gothia for a while on the southern tip of the Crimea. And there's some debate if, if these were really true Goths. People called them Goths for centuries, for a millennia after that, but they might have not actually been true Goths. They might have been a related branch of Eastern Germanic tribes. There's other theories out there, like they might even be related to the Saxons, and there's other theories that they might even be like related to, um, or at least got a second uh, surge of Anglo-Saxon blood um, from refugees from the Battle of Hastings. There, okay, I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you how accurate some of those theories are. Um, I would say, from what I've come across, the, the mainstream point of view is that they were related to Goths, and they were definitely called Goths for a millennium, so let's go ahead and call them Goths, like proper Goths. Um, anyways, Goths was an inexact term, so I don't want to, you know, just, they were Eastern Germanic peoples speaking Eastern Germanic languages way longer than any other Eastern Germanic people. That's a fact. Now, St. Cyril reported them on his mission to the Slavs around 850 AD. So here's one record of um, Gothic speakers on the Crimean Peninsula. And their capital at one point was Doros, which is Mangup, Mangup today. And artifacts discovered through archaeology in the region have helped us understand Eastern Germanic peoples in general. So whatever you call them, it's, it's given us greater insight into, you know, Eastern Germanic peoples. By the 6th century, they were definitely Orthodox Catholic, you know, Trinitarian Christians. And Gothia, also known as Theodoro, was formed after the vile, evil, horrible Fourth Crusade out of parts of Byzantium, and the rest was occupied by the Gionese. And already at this time, definitely Crimean Goths were a minority in the region. The region was then, you know, became part of the Ottoman Empire in 1475 as the Khanat of Crimea. And in the 16th century, Crimean Goths were still reported to exist. Okay, so 16th century, 1500s. They were still known by European travelers and reported. So we still have written records of Goths living in Crimea. And they were, no you know, they were known. And we have Greek, Tatars, Hungarians being widely spoken in the area, the Goths being more living in villages and being more rural. Yet, in the villages, we keep hearing reports of Goths using Germanic words to speak with each other, even though they would speak, with, they would speak Greek, Tartar, Hungarian, whatever, um, to outsiders. Okay, that's, that's kind of cool. Then, um, so 16, 1606, we have... Joseph Justus Scaliger reports they read the Old and New Testament in their own language. He says, quote, the letters of Wolfilas's alphabet. So a, you know, the Gothic um, alphabet, not necessarily runes. I'm not, I don't think he meant runes. Um, in any case, these Bibles are lost, so we don't know exactly what he meant. Um, if it's true what he said, 
then that's we only have two reports of them having their own translation of the Bible. But if that's true, that's pretty cool. They they worshipped, they had you know a Gothic Bible and worshipped in their own language. Very cool. Um, the fact that only a handful of words can be attested to Crimean Gothic today is the shameful fact that I mentioned last episode. So by the end of the 18th century, people living in the area that spoke strangely compared to the rest were still mentioned. Supposing, uh, like the people that mentioned this, supposed they were still talking about the same Goths. Um, but that's very vague. I, you know, that's not a definite fact. And that's, that's also the last report. Now, uh, kind of. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, the Soviet, the last reliable report, because um, then we do we do see influx of Germans in the 18th in the 19th century to the area. Not specifically the Crimea necessarily, but we do see an influx to the area around Odessa in you know northern Black Sea, southern Ukraine today. Um, I, so yeah, uh, then the research gets muddled, but the Soviets concluded <laughs> that. The Gothic, the Crimean Goths, mostly converted to Islam, you know, once they become became Ottomans, and interbred with the local Tartar population, until they basically disappeared. Okay, but the Soviets claimed that in certain villages you could still see these tall Germanic traits in these, you know, very specific villages, supposedly. Now, some report all the way up until 1945, so the theory goes is that potentially as late as 1945, these Crimean Goths had a strong enough culture to basically speak a Germanic dialect at home all the way until 1945. Um, But, probably to their detriment, the Nazis were also aware of these guys and had their own idealistic spin on, you know, how to use this fact. And the Nazis um, occupied the area, uh, and they had planned on renaming the local town to their old Gothic names, or at least, you know, a Nazi version of the old Gothic names, and colonized the Crimea with more Germans. Specifically from Germans from the South Tyrol, which had been part of Italy since World War I. So, you know, he had worked out a deal or thought of working out a deal with Mussolini to move the Germans out of Italy. Anyways, that never happened. Um, You can still hear an Austrian dialect of Germany in South Tyrol. And anyway, like during the during the occupation, as an example, Sevastopol was renamed Theodorichshafen, like Theodorich's Harbor. And Simferopol was renamed Gothenburg. And they even planned a superhighway from Berlin to the region. Now, okay, there, there were other Germans settling on the north coast. I'm going to get to this in a different episode way in the future. So in the 19th century, there, were, there was actually a movement of some Germanized Germans that were kind of invited to the area to colonize that area. Um, because Germans were really good farmers and brought prosperity to the, to the area. So, um, that was all well and good, but Hitler's propaganda, unfortunately, included them in his plans of the East. And, um, you know, it was part of his propaganda. Like what I mean by that is when he, when he did, you know, invade the Soviet Union, 
um, these these northern they they call them like uh, Black Sea Germans the 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 Schwarzmeer Deutsche these Black Sea Germans were Volksdeutsche you know that's a Nazi term I don't know if well it's a it's a term for Germans living outside of the German Empire um, or living outside of German of Nazi Germany I should say at, at the time so. Um, that you know, the Nazis used that as propaganda, saying, "Look, we have these Volksdeutsche, these Germans living outside of our borders. They should be within our borders. Uh, let's go make them within our borders by occupying <laughs> that part of the area." So um, that was a bad thing <laughs> for these Germans. A very bad thing for these Germans. Um, if the Nazis like you for any reason, then that's a bad thing. 1945, that, so if there was, um, anybody speaking German in a household, even if it was this ancient Crimean dialect, so it might have happened that this ancient Gothic dialect was spoken until 1945, but after the war ended, um, the area was severely de-Germanized. So all of these Volksdeutsche were schlepped off to gulags, killed, they didn't last very long. And if there was some remnants of Germanic words being spoken, the last time a mother spoke a word of Crimean Gothic to her child was at the latest 1945. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure of, of that, like not later. Um, but even then, I think it's really sad to think that that's, that's living memory. That was just a couple generations ago. The latest possible date of, you know, Crimean Gothic, of Gothic being spoken, was just my grandfather's generation. So, in conclusion of this whole episode, the purpose of this, and the last couple episodes, really, you know, when I showed the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire was, first of all, to give you the history of the Germanic kingdoms that didn't make it past the late antiquity or early Middle Ages, okay? And second, to show that the Rome that those Germans occupied wasn't really Rome. It was an empire that had emperors from all over the place. Africa, Gaul, Thrace, half Vandal, you name it, okay? That's what we call Roman emperors during this time. And the Germans who were in charge were often raised by Romans themselves, dressed like Romans, were in the Roman military, had Roman titles, okay? Uh, so many of the folks we talk about, like Alaric and Theodoric, you know, grew up speaking Greek and Latin. Barbarians indeed. And now we're setting the stage from, Aus from Ostrogoths to Lombards to later the Franks, Carefully, we see these kings carefully not disrupting the Roman governing system, and really, other than Totila, trying to keep a straight line of succession, you know, through conquest, but still, you know, keeping a, a throne in Rome, making Rome a capital city or a very important city. We see this chain continuing. Um, we see Arian. Goths trying to accommodate Catholics, many, you know, Visigoths, Vandals, Ostrogoths, all doing the same thing because the Pope who is in Rome is Catholic. And for that reason, we see, you know, the Ostrogoths doing a sort of freedom of religion thing. 
And um, yeah, so we see the Franks continuing this, even though the Franks are Catholic, and then the Saxons, and so on. So we definitely see, I, I think I can make the point that Rome fell long before 475. I mean, by then it had been sacked a few times. The You know, I mean, yeah, definitely Rome fell long before then. The Roman emperors were not in Rome. They were in Ravenna. They were not Italians even half the time. It's not like the Germans conquered the Romans of Augustus's time. It's not like the Gallic sack of Rome in the 4th century BC. Nothing like that. These were not some wild savages. These were not nomads off the steppe. The Huns were. Germans weren't. And by the time they fell into the Roman Empire, I would hardly call them barbarians. They led war, and they even plundered with certain rules in mind, and later made Roman rule their own, usually just fading out and blending in with the populations of what is modern-day Algeria, Tunisia, Spain, Portugal, Italy, the Balkans, and France, and many, many Germans fought and lived in the Eastern Roman Empire, so also in the Byzantine Empire, long after Rome fell. But some Romans were just too damn German to disappear into the local population. They actually even kind of tried to fit in like the others, but some people have just such a strong personality, I guess you could call it, that everything they touch kind of becomes their own instead of the other way around. And these guys didn't just not disappear. They would try to bring back the title Imperator and Caesar and make them their own. And once they were set up in a sustainable empire, they would try to be even more Roman than the Romans were. In fact, the whole medieval period is pretty much just thanks to the Franks. So, next couple episodes, we'll talk about the Frisians, the Alamanni, the Lombards, the Franks, Saxons, and so on. So stay tuned for the next few History of Germany episodes, and thank you very much for listening. And once again, don't forget that the History of Germany is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. So stop by agorapodcastnetwork.com to hear some of the other great shows out there. And thank you very much for listening. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.